Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Hey, on this uh, episode today, we start off a little bit different. We're giving you a little taste of what goes on during our service. And on this particular Sunday morning, we did a corporate prayer by a friend of mine, uh, Fran Pratt, out of the Austin Vineyard, praying for the victims and families and all involved in the Orlando massacre last Sunday. So we have that at the front part of this along with our communion. That takes up about the first seven minutes before we get into the message, which is called To Lead Us to Christ. So thanks for listening. We'll head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. like us to pray this prayer together. God, we cry out to you on behalf of the people of Orlando, for the families and friends of those killed in the attacks, we cry. For those wounded, we cry. For the bystanders, those shocked and terrified, we cry. For the emergency workers, giving tirelessly of themselves, we cry. For those in government and law enforcement, we cry. For the residents of the city, stranded and immobilized, we cry. For a world beset by evil, we cry. We commend the souls lost into your care and ask for healing and comfort for those that remain. These events bring us into a place of questioning of your goodness, of your sovereignty, of the nature of humanity, of the future of the world. We commend those questions into your care, asking you for wisdom, asking you for hope, asking you for courage to continue on in good work, asking you for help in overcoming asking you for comfort in trouble, asking you for a heart of love towards our enemies, asking you for justice. We acknowledge that our lives are precious, vulnerable, and often short. We acknowledge that safety is never guaranteed. We acknowledge our inability to perfectly follow Jesus' example of meekness forgiveness, and peacemaking. We acknowledge that when Jesus took upon himself the wrongdoing of the world, he took terrorism also. We look toward the completion of Jesus's work. We look toward the fullness of your kingdom come, your will done on earth as it is in heaven. We look toward the day when the whole world is aligned with the law of love. 
Be near to the brokenhearted, close in your compassion and loving kindness, generous in your giving of understanding. Amen. We're going to go ahead and move into our time of communion. I'd like to invite you all in joining and sharing in the Lord's Supper. And I want to remind you of why we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We give thanks to God, the Father, for his extravagant love demonstrated to us in sending his Son. And we remember what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And we look to the bread and juice as representations of the body and the blood of Jesus. Greater, has, greater love has no man than this, than to give up his life for his friends. And as we come forward, we welcome the Holy Spirit to meet us here in this special way. The Spirit makes the crucified and risen Christ really present to us as we share in communion. And we also demonstrate and enact the unity of the body of Christ here and around the world. And finally, we celebrate God's rule and reign and the promise of the future coming of Christ. This is not North Shore Vineyard's communion, but the Lord's communion. So all who simply come with some measure of faith in this moment are welcome to receive with us today. On the night on which our Lord was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this to remember me. And he did the same thing with the cup. After they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink it, do this to remember me. And every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you broadcast the death of the Lord until he comes. Please join with me in praying the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and glory are yours now and forever. Amen. We have three stations that you're welcome to come forward. We have one in the back and then two up front. Well, if you have... Um your bulletin. Let's read the scripture together. I won't make you stand up. I feel like I'll get too much exercise today. Those of you from a Catholic background may maybe relapsing or something. So, <laughs> but but we can read in our chairs, right? Out loud. Okay. So the, it's on the front of your bulletin. Galatians three twenty three through twenty nine. Before the faith. Let, let, let me try this again. Before the coming of this faith. We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. 
Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. This There is therefore neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's easier to read when you got somebody who can read better than I am reading this morning. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, I want to start off by telling you a story today. It may be a familiar story to some of you who are at least my age or a little older, old folks in the room. But this story took place back in the mid-'80s. There was a teenager, 16 years old, a young Italian kid named Daniel, and he grew up with, he was in a single-parent home, he lived with his mom, and they grew up in New Jersey, and New Jersey was his home and his culture, you know, all his friends were Italians, and, and they moved from New Jersey all the way across the country to the West Coast, and... Uh, he found that that being an Italian from New Jersey didn't go over so well in the surfer culture of Southern California. And when he enrolled in school, uh, he began to be bullied and picked on. And one day it got awful violent as one of the real popular kids in the school who actually was an expert in karate beat him up. But there was an old man who who, uh, saw this happen And he went over there and picked Daniel up and brought him to his home. And he bandaged up his wounds and cleaned him up. And he said, Daniel, son, I promise to teach you karate if you promise to learn. I think my my accent only holds up for about three seconds before it just turns into a generic international accent. (laughs) Little Japanese and Mexican mixed together, <laughs> and so he he promised. He told Daniel, he said, "I will teach you karate if you will learn." And so Daniel was like, "I don't want to be beat up anymore. I want to learn karate." He said, "Show back up at my house tomorrow." And so Daniel shows back up at his house the next day, and he says, "I'm here to learn karate." And Mr. Miyagi, as he was known, Mr. Miyagi said, "Let's go out back." And he he brought him to. All his cars, he had a collection of cars, and he says, I'm going to teach you how to wax these cars. And so he says, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. Some people are familiar with this story. (laughs) So Daniel spent all day waxing these cars, and he finally gets done. He goes, I'm ready to learn karate now. And Mr. Miyagi said, come back tomorrow. So he goes home. He's a little disappointed. He comes back the next day. Surely I'm going to learn karate today. He goes, I'm here to learn karate. He goes, follow me. And they go into the backyard. And Mr. Miyagi has a bucket of paint and a paintbrush. And he shows, this is how you paint the fence. Up and down. Up and down. And Daniel's like, really? <laughs> I thought we were going to learn karate. He says, paint the fence. So he's, he spends all day painting this guy's fence. And then finally, you know, he shows up the next day. He's like, I'm here to learn karate. And, and he's ready. He's got another project for him. He says, I'm not doing your, your work that you're too lazy to do all the time. And finally, Mr. Miyagi begins to show him some karate and these very moves of waxing on and waxing off. 
and painting. They were actually the defensive moves that would come in handy in the future. And then, a few months down the road, after Mr. Miyagi works with him, he faces the high school bully that was the protege of the, the you know, evil, violent uh, karate sensei, is that what you call him, uh, across town. And he faces him, and, and finally everything that Mr. Miyagi had trained him to do from waxing cars and painting fences, it all comes together in that moment. And doesn't he do like a, what's that kick called that he does? The crane kick. I was going to call it a pelican kick, but <laughs> if it took place in Louisiana, <laughs> be the crawfish move and the <laughs> pelican kick. <laughs> he does the crane kick and he knocks his opponent out and that's the end of the story. And they should have stopped it there, but they did two more Karate Kid movies after that. <laughs> I, actually, I think they didn't. They do another one a couple of years ago. I didn't. I didn't watch that one. You, you, you watched it? Oh, yeah. That's all right. <laughs> well, Paul in this passage today he talks about the law, and the and when he says the law, we're talking about the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law. Paul had been, before following Jesus, he'd been a Pharisee, or as you can read in, in Philippians chapter 3, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a, a, a teacher of the Pharisees. He's one of the, the leaders of the Pharisee movement. And the Pharisees were, were people, that the Pharisees had been around about 200 years by the first century. And they were a group of people who felt like the only reason that God had not sent the Messiah to rescue Israel was that they weren't following the rules enough. And so the Pharisees believed if they could just follow the rules better, then God would see how good they're doing at following the rules, and he'd send the Messiah. And so the Pharisees, they weren't content with just following the several hundred rules from the Old Testament. I think it's 400-plus rules in the Old Testament um, for the, the, Israel, the Jewish people to follow. The Pharisees weren't content stopping there. They came up with another couple hundred rules on top of that. And they prided themselves on the way that they followed the rules. And Paul, he, he sees a problem there. And part of the problem that he has seen in his own life. He actually discusses that in Philippians chapter 3, which we're not going to read today. But Paul refers here to the law as... There's, there's several different ways of, of translating it. In this passage we read today from the NIV, the law is a guardian. But there's also other translations that will say the law was a tutor or the law was a disciplinarian. Here's the thing. Whether you use guardian, disciplinarian, or tutor, they are all words that speak of a temporary occupation that is meant to lead something somewhere else, Right? As a parent, um, I, I've got two teenagers now, but, but particularly when kids are, are little, you don't just let kids do whatever they want, right? That's like a recipe for a nightmare, right? You don't let little kids treat people however they want because they want to throw the block at little Joey and hit him in the head. <laughs> they don't want to share they don't want to eat anything that's green unless it's coming out of their nose. <laughs> True. <laughs> we, we construct rules and boundaries for our children 
not because we want to hamper their freedom or don't want them to enjoy life. We do it because it's, it's within the hopes that someday they can leave our house and they can go get their own job and their own family, Right? I mean, most of us, I mean, I've got two teenagers, but my fantasy is not that, that my kids would be living with me when they're my age. <laughs> I mean, that could happen. But, but hopefully I am teaching them, I'm giving them the skills through boundaries, through education, through discipleship in a sense, mentoring my own kids. Hopefully I'm equipping them that they don't have to live with me. You know, at some point, they can go out on their own and make it. And Paul is kind of using this analogy for the law. The law, you know, we, I, I think as Protestants, I mean, I know every time I do a little uh, census in here, it, it seems like probably 60 to 80% of the people in this church grew up Catholic. But for those of us who've kind of come from Protestant evangelicalism, there's this kind of dichotomy between. Uh, grace and law, you know, and, and, and Luther, Martin Luther, he was like, you know, we're saved by grace. He was actually quoting Paul, by the way. You know, we're saved by grace, not of works. Uh, we, you know, we're not going to get into doing things to, to impress God. It's all just grace. But Paul says that the law actually serves a purpose. It's not, it, it, it came from God and it meant something. Now, the, the law doesn't mean to Paul at this point what it had meant to him in his Pharisee days because now he's entered into the reality. But going back to the Karate Kid for a minute, Daniel's son, when he asked to learn karate and he starts getting taught how to wax cars and how to paint fences, he could have done one of two things. He could have just said, forget it. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not learning this anymore. Or he could have gone to the other extreme and said, forget about fighting. I just want to learn how to wash cars <laughs> and paint fences. I think I'm going to go down that road and nobody's going to bother me. But the point of what Mr. Miyagi was doing with the Karate Kid, with daniel son, was to prepare him for something else. And it didn't seem like waxing cars and painting fences had anything to do with the battle, and yet it had everything to do with the battle, Right? The law is a tutor, a disciplinarian to bring us to Christ. Uh, I would recommend, highly recommend a book by um, Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is a uh, Franciscan priest and spiritual director, director who's written a ton of books, but he wrote a book uh, I read a couple of years ago called Falling Upward, Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. It's a little bitty book. But you can't read it very fast. It's very rich. Um, but, but he talks about how in our spiritual journey, there are kind of two large phases that it fits into. The first, half of life spirituality. And by the way, half of life, it's, it's, it's not really a half of life. It's not like you get to some point and it's, you know, he, he makes the point that some people are still in first half of life spirituality when they're 65, 70 years old. Um, but first half of life spirituality is about building a container for your life. I put this quote in there. There are two major tasks in the human spiritual journey. The task of the first half of life is to create a proper container for one's life and answer some central questions. Who am I? What makes me significant? How can I support myself? Who will go with me? 
The task of the second half of life is quite simply to find the actual contents that this container was meant to hold and deliver. In other words, the container is for the sake of the contents. What I found when I became a Christian at age 20, I'd made a mess of my life. I knew I, I keep going down this road. It was, it was just destruction. And I came to Jesus, and it was weird because I went from being a, just a total hedonist, <laughs> going after the sex, drugs, rock and roll thing, to the next week I'm enrolled in a Bible college in Dallas, Texas. It was a very conservative Bible college where I actually had to wear a tie every day and shave. I've been in rebellion ever since. <laughs> But I went from being this hedonist on the one side to all of a sudden becoming a very zealous fundamentalist on the other side. And I was extremely disciplined. I mean, I read my Bible more than any of y'all. And I prayed all the time. And I was always serving and doing some activity because I thought that it, it had to do with the quantity. <laughs> that, that, that the more I do this stuff, the more approval I get. The more blessings I get put in my debit account, my, in my heavenly debit account, right? And, and so I was always trying to get God's approval based on my performance. I was building a container. <laughs> but what I found a few years into it that, you know... I was mistaking the container for life itself, right? And we do this. And this is a part of our journey. Especially when you're in your, you know, from about 18 to 30. Those are, that's the time in your life where you're asking yourself these questions. Who am I? What makes me significant? How can I support myself? And you start answering these questions. You start figuring it out. This is what I want to do. Except you finally get to a point where you realize, wow, oh, this just doesn't feel like life. I've got everything answered, but I feel empty inside. Now, here's the deal. Without that stage, you never get to the next stage. <laughs> the law is a tutor to bring you to Christ. I didn't begin to understand about the grace of God until I tried to work myself to death pleasing God, and finally I was ready to give up. And I think God was like, oh, we can work with that now. We can do something with that. When I finally gave up on my own efforts, when I finally realized I cannot impress God with my performance, I finally was ready to give up. All of a sudden, I was open to the grace of God. And I began to slowly move into second half of life spirituality. And I think I'm still slowly moving into it all these years later. Jesus said in Luke 5, 37, he says, oh, I, I forgot to write it down. Oh, I, I might have written it down over here. I think I just put the, I put the Galatians thing there again. <laughs> Jesus talks about how you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Back in... in in the first century, you stored wine not in bottles but in these wineskins. They were made out of leather. And if you had old wineskins and you put new wine into it, the fermentation process would actually crack the bags open and you'd lose all the wine. Jesus says if you, if you want to hold new wine, you've got to get new wineskins, fresh, supple leather that can, that can actually expand and hold the life within. 
the first task of our life is to build a container. And we spend years doing this. The second task is finding a new wineskin to hold the life. The old wineskins are good enough, we say, even though, according to Jesus, they often cannot hold the new wine. According to him, if we do not get some new wineskins, both the wine and the wineskin will be lost. The second half of life can hold some new wine because by then there should be some new wineskins. But that means, of course, that the container itself has to stretch, die in its present form, or even replace itself with something better. And this is the full rub, but also our midlife excitement and discovery. Paul was a type of person that before he met Christ, he was extremely zealous for the law to the point where if you didn't agree with Paul, he would be okay with you dying. (laughs) He basically felt my little group of people with our interpretation of what God's like, we are the only ones who've got it right. Everybody else needs to die. We call those people today terrorists. And, And Paul was a terrorist. I mean, textbook definition, terrorist. But when he meets Jesus, things are different. Paul never fights for God again. Now he just follows God. Paul's life is not characterized by us versus them. He's got a much more expansive view of God. This is what happens in this journey. We need the tutor in our life. We need boundaries. We need things to to, to show us, to reveal. As Paul would say, the law reveals our sin. It shows us what's wrong. This is how it happened in my life. After a few years of being a Christian and trying all these things, I began to just... You know, I was trying so hard to hide these things on the inside and act like I had it together on the outside. But I was a jerk. I mean, in, in, in college, man, I, like, the only thing that gave me life or the appearance of life was fighting with people about Christianity. I'd fight with my biology teacher. I'd fight with my philosophy teacher. I'd fight with, not, not a physical fight, argue. I, I would argue with them. This was the days before Facebook when, you know, now it's so easy to fight with people. Um, but I would love getting up in people's faces and, and arguing over this stuff. But bit by bit, God began to chip away. The, the law actually began to reveal my heart. And I finally began to realize that the things that I hated in other people were the things that I hated in myself. And I really didn't think that God accepted these things in me. And finally, I began to see that God accepted not just gifted Crispin, not just this external stuff. He actually accepted all the broken stuff within that I tried so hard to hide from everybody else. He loved that guy too, and he accepted him. And that was hard for me to believe at first. But the more that I moved into understanding that, the more I began to actually accept myself. Be gracious to myself. We got to learn that, folks. And guess what? When I learned God's grace and acceptance of me and I began to be gracious and accepting of myself, what did that do concerning other people? Yeah, all of a sudden, I could accept other people. I don't need to change other people anymore. 
I don't need to act like I know everything because one thing I've come to learn is I don't know much. I've got a very limited view on the world. And I might be able to learn something from people that I disagree with. Now, that would sound scandalous to the 25-year-old version of myself because I had the mentality when I was a first a Christian that our little church that I went to, we had the corner of the market on truth. And everybody else, we didn't know if God was going to let them into heaven. I don't know if anybody else been to the church like that. We looked down on the Pentecostals and Catholics alike, the Lutherans, the Episcopals. Oh, they're all just dead denominations. God's not doing anything with them. But we... we We're his favorites. What what happens in our lives is when God begins to transform us, when we move, when we begin moving from being tutored by the law into the grace of Jesus Christ, we don't have to fight for Jesus anymore. We can accept people where they are. We can listen to people share their stories, and we can even We can even receive truth from people that might not be in our group. It's true. All truth is God's truth. Wherever it pops up. (laughs) This time's up. That's all you get today. (laughs) So... Jesus, uh, or so Paul in here, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, Paul goes from the law being a tutor that brings him to Christ to saying, Now put on Christ. And what does it look like when you put on Christ? We stop relating to people among the divisions of this world. There's no longer Jews and Gentiles in group and out group. There's no longer male and female fighting over, over those issues. There's no longer even slave and free. In that culture, as a slave, you would have been called property. You wouldn't have the right to vote or anything. But now you're, you're in Christ. You're equal. And second half spirituality, the kind that Paul has moved into from his former life as he's encountered Jesus Christ, is, it's very different because now in following Jesus and putting on Christ, we don't get hung up on the divisions of this world. We can accept people for who they are the same way we are accepted. And what a powerful thing that is. What a powerful thing that is. I think of all the emotional energy and anxiety and anger that I used to pour into not liking other people and trying to change other people and convert other people, all that. Oh, the peace when you give that project up and you live in the grace of God. And now you can actually sit down with people that you don't, that you think you don't like. You've treated them as an issue or a project or a problem And now you can actually sit down with them without trying to fix them or change them or convert them. And you can listen to them. And as you're listening to them, you can listen to God. And you can walk away from that conversation maybe loving that person more and maybe even learning something from God. It's crazy how that happens. This new life is not about dividing the world but but reconciling the world. 
It's not about winning arguments, but sincerely listening to people. It's not about fighting for God, but simply following Jesus. It's not about clinging to our rights, but surrender and trust. It's not ruled by fear, but enlarged by love. Not about rejecting others and ourselves, but extending the same hospitality to others that we have ourselves received from God. It's not about seeing others as issues or problems to be solved, but as fellow humans created in God's image. Where do we find ourselves today? Where do we find ourselves? Do we feel like, are we investing our energy in trying to control others or change others or or doing all that stuff? Are we rejecting ourselves? Do we feel like God doesn't truly accept us within? Have we not accepted ourselves? Have we not extended grace? I'm not telling you that all these things can change this moment. They won't. But we can invite God in. We can invite God in. We can let go. Just say, God, come on in. I want to close with um, a little song this morning that is, it's just about, it's just about letting go. It's about surrender. It's about just being. We'll uh, invite Faith to, to join me with her angel voice. don't need to vent, I need to be silent I don't need to rant, I need just to be still I don't need to make believe, I need the real I don't need the TV, what I need is Just need to hear 
I need to transform Don't need to accuse I need to be reborn Don't need to be caught up In delusions so grand I don't need to know I need to understand 